0: 2Keto LLC, it's the Obesity Code podcast with Dr. Jason Fung and Megan Ramos. Each week, we bring you lessons and stories from the Intensive Dietary Management Program in Toronto, Canada. I'm Carl Franklin. And today on the show, non scale victories, or benefits of fasting and ketogenics other than weight loss. The Obesity Code podcast is brought to you by 2Keto LLC who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. And you can support our mission by making a monthly pledge, no matter how small, at patreon.2keto.com. This week's story centers around patient Kimberly Demarest. Like most of IDM's patients, Kim's been on roller coaster dieting her whole life. Her mother is one of seven, each of which has type 2 diabetes. Kim is one of four. All but one of her siblings has type 2 diabetes.
1: And so ever since my 20s or so, um, I've been struggling against that and trying to do everything I possibly can do to prevent that from happening.
0: Her undergrad degree is in biology and chemistry, so she naturally thought about modifying her diet. At the young age of 22, Kim started a program called Natural Hormonal Enhancement, which was mostly low-carb with carb cycling. This approach worked for weight loss, but she allowed herself to be talked out of it by just about everybody.
1: I got talked out of that by society, essentially.
0: (laughs) Her mother had done low-carb and controlled her diabetes for a while, but probably ate too much protein and got stuck. Other friends, family, and doctors convinced her she was harming herself. So she quit the low-carb program and opted for a low-fat, low-calorie diet instead.
1: I did lose weight for a time when I did low-calorie, like I I lost a bunch of weight. Um, But I think that's actually now why it's so difficult for me to lose weight because um, I just kept lowering and lowering and lowering my calories.
0: At one point, Kim said she was eating about 1,100 calories per day.
1: I was eating maybe 1,100 calories a day for like a month, and I was like uber strict. And I was gaining weight. One of
2: the problems with reducing calories coming in is that our bodies respond by reducing calories expended.
0: That's the other Keto Dude, Richard Morris, co-host with me of the Two Keto Dudes podcast.
2: This strategy has diminishing returns, and as Dr. Fung pointed out on last week's episode, episode three of the Obesity Code podcast, people who restrict calories without doing something to lower their insulin production can end up gaining weight on a calorie-restricted diet.
1: But also, I worked out like a psycho. I mean, I worked out six days a week, um, spinning, cycling. I mean, we cycle, I've cycled across Iowa twice. I never lose weight cycling.
0: It's a myth that exercise is necessary in order to lose weight, in order to lower insulin, and in order to avoid type 2 diabetes. Professor Tim Noakes is a South African scientist and an emeritus professor in the Division of Exercise Science and Sports Medicine at the University of Cape Town. We asked Tim, is it possible to exercise your
3: way out of a bad diet? Well, I thought I could and so i ran 70 marathons and ultra marathons in my life and i noticed that after the age of about 50 i started getting progressively heavier and of course you get as you get heavier it's more difficult to run so you your calories out's going down but the calories in seems to go up and i discovered that as soon as i changed to the low carb diet my weight just dropped off i lost 11 kilos in the first 8 weeks which is which is a good result and I've, I've lost up to 21 kilograms total and it had nothing to do with the exercise because the amount of energy you expend during exercise is so trivial compared to how easy it is to put those calories into your mouth. It's really funny because Zoe Harkom, who I've got such a great respect for, she, she's written a, a blog this last week and she said You know what people forgot when they said you burn so many calories during exercise? They forgot to subtract the number of calories you would normally send if you were just sitting in your chair. And if you subtract your resting metabolic rate from the amount of calories you're supposed to expend during exercise, it's even smaller. And she gives this example of some children who they would have an experiment. And one cola drink, and they had to run for an hour and a half to spend all the, the calories. And that, that's the reality. So the amount of calories
0: expended while exercising really isn't that much. However, there is an upside to exercise, even if it's not weight loss.
1: I do think that it helped pull the blood sugar out, out of my blood. Um, and so it did help in the respect of I never officially got like a pre-diabetic uh, diagnosis or anything like that.
0: So the exercise helped her burn off glycogen. So her blood sugar never got dangerously high, but that wasn't enough for her insulin to be low enough over a sustained period of time. Therefore, she wasn't losing weight. We should mention that Kim has lost some weight, but up until the point she started fasting, she found it extremely difficult to shed pounds. Dr. Fung goes into a little more detail on why exercise isn't
4: the most efficient way to lose weight. Remember, the core problem with obesity is not one of calories. The core problem of obesity is too much insulin, which is sometimes also caused by insulin resistance. So if you have a lot of insulin resistance, you your body will respond by producing more insulin. So it's a vicious cycle. Too much insulin can lead to insulin resistance. Insulin resistance can lead to too much insulin. And too much insulin is really the signal for your body to store fat. And the real problem is that exercise does not address these core issues. Yes, it does burn calories, although very, very inefficiently, but the problem of insulin is not addressed because it's mainly to do with the liver, with fatty liver and insulin resistance, and you really cannot exercise your liver. That is, if you run, your muscles get exercised, they get worked, and so on,
3: but you really don't affect the liver in any way. And the key I'd say about obesity is obesity is a disease of hunger. And that's the key. You've got to treat the hunger. And as soon as you get your brain working properly, and so the apostat in the brain is working properly, and you're not always hungry, you will start eating the appropriate amount of calories and you'll lose the weight. Apostat? What's an apostat?
4: So there's this idea of a body set weight, uh, which is that your body seems to set a weight and then defends it against either going up or going down. So it's like a thermostat. So if you think about your thermostat in your house, what happens is that you set a temperature, so room temperature. And if it gets too hot, your your thermostat turns on the air conditioning and brings it back down. If it's too cold, it turns on the heat and brings the temperature back up. But in both cases, you have this kind of um, feedback mechanism where the thermostat detects these changes in temperature and then enacts some kind of mechanism, air conditioning or heating, to counteract that and bring it back to its original temperature and the same thing happens in the body if you study body weight uh, and body fatness what you see is that there's the same sort of thermostat which some people have called an apostat or body set weight so suppose you weigh 180 pounds Uh, if your body weight all of a sudden jumps way up very quickly to say 200 pounds your body um will actually react to bring that weight back down to its original weight. If your body uh, suddenly drops in weight, very suddenly, it will react to bring that weight back
2: up. There was a study done in 1995 by Liebel et al, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, entitled, Changes in Energy Expenditure Resulting from Altered Body Weight. They took obese and non-obese subjects and fed them a liquid formula until they were all weight stable. And then they tested their resting energy expenditure. This is the energy that they use just sitting on the couch doing nothing. So the study overfed these subjects by taking them off the liquid diet and having them eat any kind of food that they wanted, but they had to gain 10% of their body weight by overeating up to 8,000 kilocalories per day. And when they tested their resting energy expenditure, it had gone up by almost 300 kilocalories per day. Then they put the subjects back on the liquid diet, but a calorie restricted 800 kilocalories per day until they got back to their starting weight. And they tested their resting energy again. It had gone back to a starting amount. Now they kept these subjects losing weight until they were 10% below their starting weight. What happened to their resting energy? It went down by a further 400 kilocalories per day they managed to get some of these subjects to lose 20% of their body weight and their resting energy dropped by a further 100 kilocalories per day. So as their available calories increased, their consumption of calories at rest grew by 300 kilocalories per day. And as their available calories decreased, their consumption of calories shrank by 500 kilocalories per day their caloric expenditure was changing in response to their available calories.
0: Okay, so the apostat is working to keep your body at
4: a regulated weight. How on earth do we hack it? So how does our body set weight work? Well, remember what we said is that insulin is one of the main hormones involved in determining your body fatness. So as you eat, insulin goes up. Insulin tells your body to store body fat, to store your food energy um, on the body, so body fat. When your insulin goes down, your body then uh, gets the signal to start burning some of this stored energy or burning some of this body fat. So what happens during obesity? Well, insulin goes up, you gain body fat. As your fat cells increase then what happens is that you start to secrete a second hormone called leptin. So leptin is produced by the fat cells and tells your body, hey, I'm getting too fat. It travels to the brain and this leptin then tells the body to stop eating. So it really controls your appetite. It makes you just not want to eat at all. So as you don't eat, well, insulin goes down. Insulin goes down, the fat cells start to shrink, and then the leptin level goes down, and then you're back to square one. So you see this is a feedback mechanism, very similar to the thermostat in the house, that is, If your temperature goes up too much, it turns on the air conditioning and then eventually it gets back down to normal and then it turns off. This is the same thing. Insulin goes up, gain body fat, body fat produces leptin. Leptin tells you to stop eating, insulin goes back down. So very nice and efficient and worked very well up until about 1977 or so when the obesity epidemic started. So what goes on in obesity? Well, remember the the, the fundamental problem is too much insulin. So insulin goes up, you gain body fat, body fat um, produces leptin, goes to the brain and tells it to stop. But the disease of course is too much insulin. Insulin stays high even though leptin is also high and trying to shut it down. So you've got a tug of war between insulin and leptin, because insulin is trying to raise body fat, leptin is trying to lower body fat. And this is the struggle. This is the big battle, sort of uh, Rocky versus Apollo Creed sort of thing. You've got these two heavyweight hormones trying to do opposite things. But remember the disease of obesity is hyperinsulinemia. You've got too much insulin. So in the end, insulin is what prevails because this is what's, what our disease is your body has leptin, but it's losing the war against insulin. So it responds by producing more and more and more leptin, these, these expanded fat cells. Then you get leptin resistance. So in, leptin stays high all the time. Eventually the sensors get desensitized and then you develop leptin resistance. So even though you give leptin, it doesn't have the effect. If your insulin
0: is too high, you never get the signal to stop eating your thermostat is broken.
4: But if you start lowering a lot of your carbohydrates, reducing sugar, trying to fast for example, which is the most efficient way of lowering insulin, well now all of a sudden when you're trying to influence the battle of insulin versus leptin, if you lower insulin then you're going to make it more likely that leptin is going to win
1: the three months prior to January when I kind of first sort of started the keto thing, um, I had gained, I think, 25 pounds in three months. And that was not like courting food. I mean, It wasn't like a, a total glutton. I mean, I ate a lot of food, but it just is uh, very easy for me to gain weight and very difficult to lose.
0: In 2014, Kim read a book called It Starts With Food by Dallas and Melissa Hartwig, promoters of the Whole30 program.
1: And We did a Whole30 for uh, 30 days, and we, my husband and I both felt great. He lost quite a bit, but I didn't lose anything, but I felt good.
2: Insulin resistance was keeping Kim's insulin higher, and that was putting a floor under her weight loss. As Dr. Fung explains, insulin resistance doesn't always resolve quickly.
4: Insulin resistance itself is a process that develops over many years and probably many decades. But if you think that you can reverse that process in a couple of months, you're likely mistaken. Dr. Fung likens insulin-resistant fat cells to an overstuffed suitcase.
0: Once they're at capacity, all the insulin in the world isn't going to convince them to take up more
4: sugar and fat? So if you think about it, that suitcase is just completely full and it's in fact well past the point where it should be. Are you willing to do what it takes to get it all the way back down to normal? That takes a lot of fasting, a lot of strict, uh, you know, dietary compliance over multiple decades. Uh, is it possible? It's absolutely possible, but it's, it's, it takes time and it takes effort. But in the end, it is reversible.
0: In January 2017, Kim was desperate. She learned about The Obesity Code, Dr. Fung's best selling book, through a religious newsletter of all places.
1: I was like shocked. I was like, "Oh, this is awesome! This makes complete sense from my science brain." And I was like, "Let me start." And um, I didn't realize that at the time, but my older brother Eric had been doing keto um, for quite a while and had lost a lot of weight and was loving it. Yeah, I started keto. I believe February first of 2017. After I read everything, I did pretty good. I got down to, like, the 180s or so.
0: Kim didn't really have any more trouble starting keto than any other diet because she was prepared to suffer for four weeks.
1: I always assume starting any diet, the first four weeks are going to be hard. So in my mind, I'm just like, I'm going to commit 100%.
0: She was surprised to find that it got easier after five weeks or so, after she became fat adapted.
1: Well, on keto, once you get through that first four weeks life is a lot easier.
0: Kim lost 20 pounds pretty quickly, but had some setbacks with holidays.
1: For Easter, I uh, went off because we're all Italian. And so my mom was making homemade pasta and I was like, well, I've been great, so I'm going to do this. And I've been testing my ketones, my blood sugar, and I've been doing pretty good. Right after that day, my blood sugar was like in the 140s for like days after. And I was just shocked that one day could do that. And before that, it had been in the 90s or the 80s, you know, my morning glucose. And it was still, I wasn't getting pretty that high of ketone readings either. Um, And so after that, I cried. I ate a bunch and I was like, this doesn't work. And then I was listening to the podcast again and I was like, I just must have been doing something wrong.
0: She reached out to intensive dietary management and was shocked that she could fast so easily.
1: And I love it. And I think that it's just going to take time for the weight to come off.
0: And Kim says the best thing about fasting.
1: Uh, Number one is the freedom, like just not having to cook and uh, not worrying about what are we going to eat. It's just, you know, really easy. And my husband uh, does it with me, so (laughs) it makes life really easy. He doesn't fast as much as I do, but um, I try to make uh, enough meals for him for my fasting so that he could just go into the freezer and grab something if he decides to shorten his fast, which makes life easier.
0: Once Kim started fasting, she began to see results. Her HbA1c went down.
1: My A1c's are down to 4.8. Um, so I'm very happy about that Um, and I I just I feel so good and I just really never feel like eating you know if you're on a diet for a long period of time you think when am I going to be able to cheat I'm going to have a rest day a cheat day but on this There's just never a need. Um, If I decide I want to eat more, I, I just eat keto, it's very easy for me to say no.
0: Like all the other patients that we interview on the Obesity Code podcast, she feels in control for the first time in her life.
1: The power you have over your own food choices, I don't feel like a slave to food anymore, I guess is what it boils down to.
0: Her doctor is more or less on board, but was a little concerned.
1: Like a lot of people, my cholesterol has gone up on keto.
5: We've got it very, very badly wrong, actually. And I start now telling my patients to stop fearing cholesterol.
0: That's Dr. Asim Malhotra. He's known as one of the most influential cardiologists in Britain and a world-leading expert in the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of heart disease.
5: I was involved in some research published last year. Um, with 16 international scientists, we did a systematic review looking at people aged over the age of 60, specifically, and the association of LDL, so-called bad cholesterol and heart disease. The reason they chose people over 60 is because most people who have heart
0: attacks are over the age of 60.
5: And what we found, and it was published in BMJ Open, uh, and it made news in in the UK, uh, was pretty extraordinary. We found that if you're over 60, there was no association no association whatsoever between LDL cholesterol and heart disease, and an inverse association with all-cause mortality.
0: In other words, the higher your LDL, the less likely you are to die if you're over 60.
5: As we know, cholesterol has so many functions in the body that are really essential, and we die without cholesterol, whether it's, you know, maintaining the integrity of cell membranes, hormone production, neurological function. But one of the other um, uses, if you like, or, you know, why cholesterol is important is also it's involved in the immune system. And it's thought that actually, in the people with higher LDLs who are elderly are protected against um, life-threatening infections, such as pneumonia, which is what elderly people, you know, vulnerable to and can die from.
0: Wait a minute. I thought high LDL caused
5: heart disease. Wasn't there some study that showed that? When you look at the original association studies framing them, this you know, population in Massachusetts who followed up for decades, a lot of studies were done on those on that population, looking at cholesterol as a risk factor, You know, and I only discovered this relatively re- recently, and I thought this is really interesting, is that um, the association of heart disease was only present when your total cholesterol was above, in UK terms, we say 10.
0: 10 millimoles per liter, which is used in Canada and the UK, is 386 milligrams per deciliter, which is what we use in the US.
5: LDL, though, was only associated with heart disease when it was above 190 or 4.9. Now, the overwhelming majority of patients that I see don't have an LDL to that level. And even then, you know, when you look at the risk factors, it's still much further down the list when you compare it to insulin resistance and high blood pressure and body mass index and triglycerides and HDL and that kind of thing. So to recap, Kim has a family history
0: of type 2 diabetes. Years of calorie restriction made her severely insulin resistant. Once she got through four weeks of ketogenic eating, she found it easy to fast and then she started losing weight. Even though weight loss is moving slowly, Kim has experienced many benefits of intermittent fasting and ketogenic eating, and let's talk about those now. The first big change she noticed was in mental acuity.
1: Oh, my brain. My brain is so much fun. I think I've never been able to concentrate so well in all my life. Um, I was the type of person where I would just like work for 15 minutes, and then get up and do something and then come back. And um, I have two screens at work and you're constantly transferring information from one program to another program. And I don't know, I had like ADD computer problems because I would have like 30 windows open and I could never finish one task. And now I'm like, okay, I'm gonna finish this task and then I'm gonna move on to the next task. I mean, it's just never been so clear and so easy.
0: Mental acuity is a well-known side effect of
4: lower insulin levels. Here's Dr. Fung. You see this in mice studies where they fast mice and they they train them on uh, gyms and so on. And also anecdotes from history. So again, if you go back into the literature from World War II, uh, in the biography Unbroken uh, by Lauren Hillebrand, she describes the experiences of this American uh, prisoner of war in Japan. And these people are literally starving. They are really eating very, very little. So the body's forced to break down its all its muscle and everything, they're they're very skinny. And what he talks about was um, something which struck me. They talk about the astounding mental clarity of starvation. Yes, Jason is talking about starvation here, not
0: fasting. There's a big difference. When you're starving, your body is in an advanced state of fasting.
4: And he talks about people who are learning Norwegian in a week and reading books from memory and these really superhuman um, things that nobody else can do. Pythagoras, the famous Greek mathematician, uh, is reported to force his students to fast before they come to his uh, classes so that they are are able to function at that higher level. If you think about it evolutionarily, it makes sense, think about it personally uh, after you've had a big Thanksgiving dinner, um, what happens? Do you feel really mentally sharp? Or do you just feel like lying down on the couch and watching some football? Um, When you say somebody is hungry for something, hungry for a promotion, hungry for success, does it mean that they're tired and lethargic and they really just don't want to do anything? Uh, Not really. It means you're activated, you're motivated, and you're functioning at this higher, sharper level. And that's something that's become very popular recently in uh, Silicon Valley, for example, uh, where fasting has become, you know, sort of this big dietary trend. And the reason is that this whole um, notion of biohacking which is these tricks that you do to make yourself function at a better level and fasting is one of these tricks that people have used for thousands and thousands of years and again if you're competing in companies to be the best to be the next Facebook to be the next Google to be the next Apple you need more brain power the way you can give yourself that extra brain power is fasting and it's free. So why wouldn't you do it? It's like steroids for your brain. Uh, people take steroids because they know it'll make them stronger and faster and they're willing to pay the price, but this one actually makes you healthier and saves you money. In addition to the sharp mental
0: acuity, Kim felt warm for the first time in years. Her body temperature increased.
1: Oh, I stopped freezing like an old woman. I mean, can you believe, like, I've lived my entire life not feeling my hands and feet, and now I do?
2: This may be a result of the many years that Kim spent in caloric restriction. As Jason Fung mentioned in last week's episode, episode 3 of the Obesity Code podcast, the difference between fasting and calorie restriction is that fasting lowers insulin. Simply eating fewer calories doesn't. Insulin prevents adipose cells from releasing fat and it also prevents muscle cells and other energy consumers from using fat for energy. The end result is there is less energy to go around so our bodies react by reducing non-essential consumption, which can include heating. Once you lower insulin, you now have abundant energy and you can use it for non-essential uses like heating.
1: This morning, okay, perfect example, 50 degrees out, it was 64 in the house. And I was so hot, I opened the windows. I'm like, it is so hot in here. I'm like, what is the problem? And my husband says that I'm a furnace, like I'm an inferno.
0: Dr. Fung explains the paradox of how not eating results in more
4: energy. So one of the things that is a myth is that if you don't eat for several days, You're going to feel weak as a kitten, very lethargic, and so on. And this goes along with the idea that eating gives you more energy. And you see it everywhere. People say all that, oh, you have to eat, otherwise you'll have no strength, and that kind of thing. So people are always uh, very surprised when they start fasting and feel that they actually have more energy than usual.
0: One of the ways you can gauge your basal metabolic rate, or your calories out, is by how much body heat you're emitting. When Kim was calorie restricted, she was often very cold. That's a sign that her calories out was slowing down. She was burning less calories. When your home is warm, that's because your thermostat is set high. You're probably burning more fuel to warm your home. It all has to do with your basal metabolic rate
4: that's uh, the amount of energy that your body expends to kind of keep itself running. So keep your liver going, generate body heat and so on. If you limit the number of calories you take in a day, but don't keep your insulin levels down so that you you have to, to allow yourself access to those uh, stores of body fat, then your body is going to turn down the temperature because generating body heat requires a lot of energy and your body simply doesn't want to expend that amount of energy. So as Kim started to lose weight, she noticed that she has increased body temperature, which is often a sign that her basal metabolic rate is going back up. Let's
0: continue our metaphor of heating your home by turning up the thermostat. Let's say you have a large oil tank in the basement, but the valve connecting it to the furnace is shut off. That valve is controlled by your insulin level. When insulin is low, the valve is open, and oil can flow to the furnace at will. When insulin is high, the valve is shut, and your furnace has to find an alternate source of fuel. In this case, glucose, sugar, carbs. Carbs are like wood. You have to keep stoking the furnace with wood. You have to keep going out to the wood pile
4: to get more or else the fire will go out. Bonk. Over many years of uh, kind of yo-yo dieting, people who just try to restrict a few hundred calories per day, oftentimes their basal metabolic rate has gone down. But the good news is that this is not a permanent condition. You can actually increase the basal metabolic rate. It, It can go up or down by 30 or 40%. So obviously we want to make it go up. And one of the things that seems to at least keep it stable or make it go up is intermittent fasting. For example, if you take a study where you put people on a 4-day fast, they and then they measure their basal metabolic rate at day 1 versus day 4, what you find is that the amount of calories that they're burning, the amount of energy they're expending on day 4 is actually 10% higher than it was at the beginning, which seems counterintuitive. You might think, well, why would your body be spending more energy when it's getting none of it in? And the answer is that the body has simply switched fuel sources. So it's switched from burning sort of the food that you eat and it switched over into burning body fat, which is the stored food that you have. And the body's like, wow, there's tons of this stuff, so let's just go and burn it. So then it doesn't dial it down, it doesn't turn down the basal metabolic rate. But the key is that fasting reduces insulin, which is what's keeping you from accessing those stores of body fat. Kim's next non-scale victory had to do with
0: exercise. Exercise felt good.
1: When I first started keto and I would work out like swimming, I would get very dizzy. And I realized that I had to weigh up the electrolytes that I was drinking And then also with cycling, uh, when you cycle in heat, you lose a lot of potassium, magnesium, and salt especially. And I had never been able to really, even this is even before keto, I'd never been able to get past about the 40-mile mark without Charlie Horses in my quads um, cycling. When I first met Kim, our biggest struggle was her sluggish metabolism.
0: That's Megan Ramos, program director and co-founder of the Intensive Dietary Management Program.
1: Changing the electrolytes to be able to maintain Kin's activity level helped a great deal. But after that, I had my first bike ride um, September 24th, where I did 35 miles, and it was 90 degrees in Michigan, which is weird, but um, I did not have any cramps So for the first time. So I really up my magnesium, up my potassium, and um, salt.
0: Probably the biggest non-scale victory for Kim is her mood improved. She's always in a good mood now.
1: Probably most of my victories right now are non-scale victories, like feeling so awesome, Um, always on a high, I'm always in a good mood.
0: Being in a good mood may seem like a luxury, like a frivolous reason to cut carbohydrates or fast, But really, this is where all good things in your life stem from, your mood. Here's Professor Noakes on how a low carbohydrate diet affects your mood.
3: In a positive way. I think that it makes you more controlled, more calm. And it's really interesting, if you ask Dave Scott, he said that his mental state is much better than than it was when he was winning the Ironman eating an 80% carbohydrate diet. Professor Noakes is talking about Dave Scott a
0: U.S. triathlete, and the first to win the Ironman Triathlon Hawaii Championship for six years. 1980, 82, 83, 84,
3: 86, and 87. And he's, he will tell you that it's because of the healthy fats that he now eats. And he focuses strongly on those. People frequently tell me that they control their psychiatric conditions much better. The depression is much less. The bipolar symptoms are much less. The autism is less. So I just happen to think it's, by and large, that there the are very positive results on mood of the start.
1: Well, this is one thing for women. I don't know if other women experience this. Maybe, maybe not. But I used to turn into, like, a psycho during my PMS week, you know? And, in fact, it was so bad. I'm like, why did I just say that? And then I would think, oh, I'm about to get my monthly visitor, oh great. Um, But now it's very, even. I'm very even keel that way. And then also my periods are like three days, which is the best thing ever. I mean, it is so awesome. Um, I never get cramps anymore, um, which is awesome she's become virtually unstoppable Uh, so every time I talk to her she is there she's in the moment she's motivating all of the other clients that participate in her group follow-up sessions all just love her energy I love her energy she's like my shot of espresso at the end of the day on Thursdays and that's one thing I've noticed from talking to her every couple of weeks Um, it's just wow like so such an amazing improvement in her energy she is sharp she is focused she's sending me detailed notes. You should see the (laughs) notes that this woman is sending me.
0: I asked Kim if these non-scale victories were enough to keep her on the ketogenic diet and fasting regimen for the rest of her life.
1: I will never stop, um, but I do hope that my weight comes off, I would like to be quite a bit smaller than I am now.
0: There it is. So that should be enough evidence to you that this isn't a diet. There are so many benefits to cutting carbohydrates and fasting. It's going to feel so good. You're not going to want to stop. This is what we see over and over and over again. It's not just about the weight, my friend.
1: Besides, I mean, it's so much more fun to eat, at. I mean, it's just so much more fun. The food is so much better. My aunt, my um in-laws were up last week, like I was telling you, and I made them keto food the entire week. And they added, you know, their soups, you know, their oyster crackers and stuff like that, but they didn't have to. They, I mean, it would have been fine. And the peanut butter pie recipe I have, they are like, this is perfect. This is really good.
0: And that's our story for this week. You've been listening to the Obesity Code Podcast, lessons and stories from the Intensive Dietary Management Program. The Obesity Code Podcast is brought to you by 2Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. And you can support our mission by making a monthly pledge, no matter how small, at patreon.2keto.com. I'm Carl Franklin.